every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Justin Schreiber, CMO of People.ai, a revenue operations and intelligence platform that uses patented AI technology to transform business activities and maximize marketing ROI. Justin has over two decades of software and marketing experience, including previous stops as vice president of marketing at LinkedIn and regional vice president of Oracle's cloud CRM. On this episode, Justin explains why a website built for everyone is a website built for no one, why you shouldn't think of your SEO strategy in broad generalities, and why you need to view your marketing effort as a system with each part reinforcing all the other parts. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Justin Schreiber, CMO of People.ai, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios and your host. And today I am joined by the amazing Justin, how are you? I'm doing great. Ian, it's, uh, we, we've done a couple of these rounds. I think we go back a few years, back to the LinkedIn days, actually. I know, right? We, I came to LinkedIn to the uh, to the headquarters up on I don't know what floor we were on, but it was pretty pretty high up there. And uh, I I'm so excited to chat with you about people AI because you have so much stuff going on. So from LinkedIn to now and and everything in between, obviously demand gen. So I, I'm excited. Yeah, it should be a great discussion. Okay, so let's get started. How did you initially get into demand? I found my way into demand. It was kind of a circuitous path. I started off my career in product management, believe it or not, and uh, loved building the products and found myself out on the road talking about the products, explaining the products, which eventually led to product marketing. And then I was at a small startup and I love, I love the fact that a small startup, you suddenly become the expert in many things that you never realized you were the expert in. My, this is not meant to be disparaging in any way towards the startup that I was at many years ago, but my JV tennis coach once told me if, when I asked him if I was good enough to make the team, he said, in a world full of idiots and imbecile is king. And so <laughs> I hate to say it, but the way I got into demand gen is there was nobody else doing the job. So I put on the demand gen hat, did my best to figure it out. And at some point people just assumed I knew how to do it. And the rest is history. And so... Now uh, you are at a really cool company for our listeners who don't know. Tell us about People.ai. Well, People.ai does a couple things. First of all, we have what we're calling a smart data platform that automatically captures all the business activity that your salespeople generate, the email, the calendar, the conferencing, and we auto-populate systems like CRM. And then the second thing that we do is we take AI and we use that data to create recommendations around account and opportunity management. So that data and the AI auto-populate what we're calling the best opportunity in account management around. And so 
as CMO, what are you responsible for? What, what falls under, uh, under Justin's purview? I have demand gen, obviously product marketing. I own the outside sales team, the BDR team, the comms team, as well as the sales enablement team. All right, well, let's get into our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where we can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. Justin, how would you describe your demand gen strategy, and how does it fit into your marketing strategy? Well, I'm a big believer that you've got to have a tightly integrated strategy. Everything needs to come together and one part needs to reinforce all of the other parts. I often think of marketing as a system where each of the parts needs to contribute to the overall system. And oftentimes when I come into a new organization, what I notice is there are many discrete efforts that in and of themselves are strong, but what is lacking is the connective tissue that amplifies all of them. So one of the things that I did when I came into people.ai is started to think through end to end from top of funnel down to closing a deal. What are some of the threads that we can pull through that are going to be really compelling? And I started interesting time with people.ai. It was AI. It was just after or just before COVID hit. So shut down the field marketing effort, definitely a challenging time. But what we started to run were these virtual seminars or summits for CROs and CMOs. And it was pretty straightforward, the format. We would get a group of high-powered executives together. We would record the session. We'd get a, an external facilitator who was also a CRO or a CMO. And in the background, we'd be recording the discussion. Well, from that, we were able to take the recording and turn it into a lot of great content. We sent it out to all the participants. We started a community of people. We had all of the information for their contacts and we facilitated that. And then we threaded that information into our sales pitch so that we could credibly say, here's what CROs or CMOs are talking about. And then over the course of time, as those folks became our customers, they became the case studies. So that's an example of where you've got top of the funnel behavior linked all the way through to bottom of the funnel sales execution. And what ended up happening is there was this flywheel effect that occurred that helped us to build more momentum. And can you share more about your persona? Who are you selling to? What does that buying committee look like? Um, What does the market look like? We've got two primary buyer personas. The first is the sales executive. And then the second is the sales or the RevOps perspective. Because at the end of the day, we tend to enter discussions related to account and opportunity management that ladders up to how that impacts productivity or or, or pipe gen. Obviously, that's top of mind for a sales executive. And so we'll we'll spend a lot of time qualifying, hey, where's the gap in your, your pipeline right now? Is it an execution problem or is it an effort problem? And then from there, we'll put forward what we can do to help that problem. But inevitably, what happens is we get handed off to operations to kind of validate and prove out the solution. So we've got a a bifurcated strategy from a marketing perspective, because those two personas think about the world slightly differently. And uh, the, the content that we're generating, the campaigns, the programs that we're generating, 
attempt to kind of meet each of those personas where they are. And then, so how do you organize organize your company to acquire those accounts? You mentioned a little bit of the different functions that are under your purview. You know, obviously, outbound marketing being part of uh, marketing is uh, is is a whole is a philosophical debate in and of itself. But um, but how do you uh, how do you organize uh, to to go about it? One of the things I love about being at People.ai is we get to use our own technology. So imagine if you knew the contact information for every person that anyone in your company had ever reached out to. That is probably the singular most precious source of ABM contact material that you could find. It's GDPR compliant because you've established a relationship with them in the past. It's targeted because you've mined it from your sales organization and your CS organization, so you know they're talking to the people that matter. So we'll use our own technology. And that's one of the big values that we bring to our customers is literally we can say, flip us on and we will, in some cases, generate hundreds of thousands of new contacts that are ready to be marketed to. So that's definitely one source that I go to. We have a very concerted focus to build our engaged marketing database month over month. And that's something that I go through with my demand gen team. And we've got a number of strategies to do that. The caveat there is I'm not just focused on how many people are in our database, because what ends up happening there is you just get a lot of junk. And I'm not even just focused on how many people fit the persona. What I really want to know is engaged contacts in the database, because if they're engaged, that tells me that most likely they're part of the persona that we're going after. We're doing a good job. And so to me, that's the metric of quality that helps to balance the the emphasis on quantity. Well, so I, I and I'm and I'm curious there. You know, it's the the classic drink your own champagne, eat your own dog food, whatever it is that you're you're able to use your own technology, which is great. Um, you mentioned how much of that information, which you said it's GDPR compliant, it's already uh, already good to go there, which is a, is a great benefit. Where do you think people are at in terms of like leveraging that type of of data? Because it seems like like you said, there's a lot of meat on the bone that people don't necessarily leverage in their marketing of in terms of people they've already been talking to. Yeah, this is one of the fundamental quandaries that we face in our industry and in the sales industry. I've been in this business for several decades now. I started off at Siebel many, many years ago. And the value proposition was always, we'll help your salespeople to be more effective, close more deals. The irony was that was all contingent on salespeople entering information in the systems that the sales and the marketers used to get their job done. Salesforce obviously came along. What did they do though? They just put the technology in the cloud. They never solved the fundamental problem, which is there's no data in the technology in the first place. So we now have these systems that are amazing systems with billions of dollars of R&D behind them and do incredible things, except for one thing. If you don't have clean, high quality data in them, then the output is not very valuable. So companies are at various stages in their journey in terms of solving this problem. Unfortunately, the vast majority of companies right now continue to ask people to manually enter data and populate systems. And we all know how that works out. Many people have created what I like to affectionately refer to as the data dumps. I think in some cases, the technology outpaced the process. And what ends up happening is you just take inordinate amounts of information and drop them into systems. 
but those data dumps do a really lousy job of matching that incoming data to the relevant places in the, the application. For example, I can drop 10,000 activities into Salesforce, but if I'm not able to match them up to the actual opportunities, it's not really, it's not really valuable. So at, a, at the highest level, the companies are embracing this notion, which I talked about before, which is smart data. That is the automation of the ingestion of, of data. But on top of that, it's being intelligent about where to drop it in systems. And in addition to that, surfacing insights or recommendations, they're actually going to help people make sense related to that data. So, you know, I, I often start a conversation. I kind of lay out that framework and say, where do you think you are? Even the most sophisticated companies, if they're being honest, will say, I haven't fully reached nirvana yet. I'm struggling. And that's where the conversation begins with us. So, you know, what's interesting. I, I've been thinking about this a bunch lately because let's say your, whoever, your events team is booking guests for your conference or whatever, right? And you do 50 emails back and forth with a bunch of people to get all those, uh, to get a bunch of guests into your event, or maybe it's like a satellite event or something like that. That person leaves the company and, you know, that event, you know, maybe it was an in-person event and there wasn't a digital record of it or whatever it is. That person that didn't involve sales at all, didn't involve marketing at all. That information that's like, hey, we've had this CISO at five of our events over the course of the last eight years. He always comes and he always brings his pal, who's another CISO, and she always comes. And that's not anywhere in the sales in the sales ecosystem. Like, how much value is lost of those type of relationships that are being built, and just no one's ever, you know, following back up. And it's like if sales isn't clued in because it's, you know, it's, again, it's somewhere maybe just off the beaten path on some, you know, marketing initiative that maybe they're they're not uh, they're just not privy to. And the irony is that data lives behind the firewall. It's simply that the data isn't where it needs to be. And so that being able to be aware of where the information is and get it to the right place, that's the key. I'll give you a, a, a very practical example that just happened to me today. Um, I do a podcast called Legends of Sales and Marketing. So I'm always talking to CROs and CMOs. And I got, I got a note from an account executive here at people.ai and they said, oh, I noticed that you're about to meet with so-and-so. That's actually my account. If you could bring this up when you're on the call with them, I would love it. I didn't, was, didn't even know that rep owned that account, but because People AI was monitoring all the things I was doing, and keep in mind, we screen out all the private stuff, so your barbecue recipes and E-Trade transactions are not gonna appear in CRM, but anything related to professional pursuits ends up showing up. So this rep actually knew that I was going to be meeting with the CRO of a company he was trying to get in touch with and was able to reach out to me. That in and of itself is miraculous. But now imagine that you're at a fairly large enterprise of a couple thousand people and the kind of leverage that you could get if literally you were aware of every single interaction that all 5,000 people at that company were having at the account that you were trying to get to. It's, it's a game changer. Well, you, uh, you're preaching to the choir because we have 21 podcasts that we do uh, at Caspian and we're managing that for, you know, 21 different companies that have all sorts of things like that all the time, right? And so you have a lot of times, and this is very common, and I'm sure our listeners would have ha had this many times, where you have a 
let's just say content marketing manager that is managing like 50% of the content that you put on your site that is going through this person. They're doing a ton of work, a ton of really hard work. They're coordinating to get customer stories and all sorts of different stuff. And they don't know who all the customers of your own company are. Mm-hmm. So they'll bring somebody on sometimes to do something to do, like we, we do with this all the time, podcast episode. Hey, is this person a customer or not? And they're like, I don't know. And it's like the marketing person doesn't even know that that account, whether or not they're a customer or not. I'm like, well, we should probably know that if they're coming on your podcast, like we should know if they're a customer. And like that happens all the time, all the time. And there's just a fundamental disconnect between what what is happening in marketing and what's happening on the on the ground level sales. And then you have the other piece of that where the rep sometimes is scared that their account is going to be involved in some marketing activity. And then they're trying to be like protective of that. And you're like, hey, we're trying to like promote this person. This is great. You should be super animated, engaged. And 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 the best folks are are able to to leverage that in their sales conversations. Yeah, absolutely right. Okay, let's get into the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. I mean, you all just raised 100 million bucks, so I know that there's coins in the coffer ready to be deployed. What are your three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Well, I feel fortunate in that I own the BDR channel. BDR is like, it's like sugar. As soon as it hits the system, it has an impact. And I know that for every BDR I add into my environment, I'm gonna get this much pipeline out of it. Now, the caveat there is we spent a lot of time up front defining what the sales motions were, defining the logistics in terms of routing, qualifying leads, getting them into the hands of the right people, what the SLAs were. But that was an investment that has really paid dividends now. And so now that we have additional investment and are really accelerating from a sales perspective, I know that that's my fastest source to pipeline. The other caveat is we have a fairly B2B oriented sales motion. So BDRs are not necessarily the path to high transaction, high volume sales, but for us, it works perfectly. The counterpoint to the BDR organization is my SEO strategy. That's one of those seeds that you plant in the ground and it takes a long time for it to blossom, but pretty soon it be, or not pretty soon, but after a while it becomes this big oak tree and it becomes the gift that keeps on giving. My experience is that a lot of people don't have the patience with SEO to really see it through. It starts before you even put anything out there with being clear about what your message and your story is. From there, coming up with a tight strategy that thinks through all of the different pieces of content. From there, how do you make it discoverable? How do you syndicate it? All of these different facets and dimension that are pretty complicated. The thing is when you get that thing dialed in, it's a powerful moat. It establishes you as a thought leader and it kind of becomes the gift that keeps on giving. One of the things that I like to track is for the key terms that we care about, where do we rank? And for me, a huge success is when we are number one on that organic search. And I will get in in the morning and I'll just do searches and I'll see where do we pop up and who's ahead of us and why are they ahead of us? And um, I was just celebrating with my team this week because we took two 
number one spots for two of the terms that we had been gunning for for months. And that was a concerted focus. And I think with SEO, it's one of those things where it's easy to kind of think in generalities. Oh, I'll do five pieces of content and um, I'll have this publishing cadence. You need to get down, though, to like, I want to be number one for these terms and I'm going to log in every day and check this and work with my team and make sure it's there. That's the kind of maniacal focus that I think that you really need to go after after. So you've got the you got the sugar fix from the BDR team and then you got the long term nourishment that comes in from SEO. And then, you know, the happy in between that we tend to run are the some of the other paid media um, initiatives bolstered by our email with the call to action that drives people to request the demos. Those are pretty typical channels, but I think the importance is the way you think about them from a portfolio perspective. Matching up what's going to give immediate impact, midterm impact, and long-term impact, in addition to what's going to drive top of the funnel, mid-funnel, and bottom of the funnel. You have those two dimensions, time and also orientation to the pipeline. So I'm curious. I love that. Um, I love all three. And so I'm curious, going to SEO for a second, do you take those list of terms that you want to own and you say, okay, these six are the ones that are our targets for, you know, the next, for six months from now. And then these six, we're not going to prioritize in terms of trying to get it from an SEO perspective. We're just going to pay for those and, um, and just try to win it that way. Or like, or do you go, or is everything based on SEO and you're not doing as much, much paid? How do you think about doing that? So we definitely have a blend of, of SEM and SEO. I would say that, and this is, there's always this classic chicken and the egg question. Do you define your search terms and then build your content based on that? Or do you build your content and pull the search terms in? And I think it's got to be a little bit of both. That said, I do think that we live in a society, a world now where people are sophisticated enough to recognize if you're just hanging stuff out there because you want to get high on the search rankings. And ultimately, that's going to come back. So quality always needs to be the uh, the first consideration. If you've worked your strategy right, though, you're very clear on who your target personas are what their pain is and how that intersects with what you do. And out of that is going to fall out the key topics that you want to explore. And I find that if there's a conflict between the content we want to produce and the search terms, there's probably an issue upstream with the strategy we put together and the understanding of the personas. Whereas when they just come together naturally, that's when I know that we've really nailed it. You know, SEM is one of those things where you can immediately pay for eyeballs. And we need to do that because we want quick results. But the organic, that's the gift that keeps on giving and obviously uh, a much, much more economic approach over the long term. So it's a blend of the two. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I love that you have the, the patience there to make sure that um, you can let the, let the acorns uh, <laughs> grow on the, on the oak tree. Because I think so many folks you know, don't want to have the patience or they can't figure out a way to get the immediate wins in order to give that time. Because I think, you know, there's a lot of CMOs out there say, hey, you know, our SEO strategy is, is going to be six months to a year. But as we as we build and build and build, it's going to get better and better. 
But in the back of their mind, they're like, I might be fired by like nine months in (laughs) to when this stuff is going to start working. So I know that I need to get some quick wins. And that's kind of where you talked about, you know, the sugar part of this, which is the BDRs where you throw more BDRs at it. I'm curious though, when you're selling to position like the CRO, like the VP of sales, like a RevOps person who has been sold to for years and years, who literally knows how to sell because they're the ones doing it. I've found that it can be really tough. And we, we joke about it all the time on this show, how many times we all get hit up every day by BDRs. Is there some diminishing returns happening in the ecosystem with, with how BDRs, uh, you know, email high and, and that whole strategy? Well, I think that the, I, argue that the BDR job is probably one of the hardest jobs in business. You are doing really tough work and many times it's just not very satisfying. My, my daughter actually was working as a BDR and this is during COVID obviously, she shares an apartment with four other roommates. So she did her work in a closet underneath the stairs with a little light bulb hanging down. And she was talking to me one day, she's like, this is tough. And I'm like, all right, first of all, get a little more light in there, put a nice poster up that's inspirational, you know, one of those like people rowing a boat or whatever. It sounds cheesy, but you got to keep your, you got to keep yourself positive. But anyway, I do think that absolutely outbounding works, but you got to do the work in order to reap the results. If you have people that are just sending out you know, uh, outreach is a, is a great tool. We use it a lot, but if that's your strategy of just bang out the generic email cadences one after another, you're not going to get results. On the other hand, if you're doing the hard work, part of the hard work is calling people on the phone, being ready to give them a one sentence tailored message when they pick up the phone, being crisp on the way that you articulate what you do. That's the thing that differentiates the successful BDR programs from the folks that are just kind of going through the motions. And as has always been the case, if you're willing to do the work, you're going to be rewarded. So you mentioned, you and I have talked about this in the past, um, how with ABM, there's gifts that you can get. There's certain things that, that you can do to really rise above the noise, to get a leg up. And you said, I, I think it was... Uh, Is it a Patagonia or something? Anyways, you got some gift from somebody that was a cool gift back in the day and that, you know, you, you wore that thing around and it worked really well. Are there things that your tools that you're giving to your BDRs to be able to, to really stand out? Well, we do have, uh, we do have several social media tools that allow them to come through accounts and get pertinent and relevant information, uh, related to them. We've got certain automated systems from a direct mail perspective so that, you can soften the beachhead. And I think those tools are becoming more and more prevalent. I would actually argue that they're kind of table stakes now. But again, what is distinguishing the BDR isn't necessarily the tools that they're using, but how they're using them. You know, the person that sent me, I think it was actually a, a nice North Face jacket. The person that sent me that had done the homework before. I'll give you an even better example. Um, I like to bake cakes and my son and I do a lot of that. And I posted on LinkedIn an article about what I learned about baking cakes with my son. And someone sent me a kit with uh, a bunch of cake baking tools. And uh, they're like, hey, saw the post, loved it, had a clever way to tie that into what they did. And I thought that was really cool. And that's something that definitely broke through. I will say one other thing, and I may sound a little bit, 
uh, spoiled on this front, but don't send me cheap stuff because we all get the cheap water bottle um, that just goes in the trash. It's another thing where the quality comes through. Like if I'm a really important person for you to get to, you're gonna do some homework on me. You're gonna maybe spend a little bit money on me. The CPL is gonna be a little bit higher, but you're gonna know that there's, there's value there. And someone that's used to getting pitched a lot, you gotta work a little bit harder to elevate yourself above where everyone else is. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, again, it, we talk about it on the show a lot. If you're if you're selling to the C to the CIO, um, if you're selling it to a CMO, if you're selling to a CRO, these people are pitched twenty four. Especially if you're an enterprise like big ticket item, like you got to come with the yeah. goods um, and be interesting and creative and all that stuff. Yep. Uh, what about one channel or tactic? that it, you don't think is working or that is fading away a little bit that you won't be investing in uh, going forward? Well, I kind of touched upon it uh, previously, but the the generic channels, the high volume email blasts, we're just doing less and less of that because what we're finding is that unsubscribe rates are climbing. Again, I, I think this is a daily ritual we all go through now where we actually kind of enjoy deleting all those emails out of our inbox in the morning because it makes us feel like we've accomplished something major before we even started the day. And so, um, and that, that gets back to the engaged marketing database that I'm building. Whereas before I think people just measured what's the overall size of that database. We, we want to know what engagement looks like. And so more and more I'm emphasizing the quality over the quantity. What's your favorite campaign that you've ever done? Well, I'll share one of my favorite campaigns, but let me let me give a shout out to uh, Megan Eisenberg out at Trip Actions. Megan's great. Yeah, she's the CMO. Love Megan. And I mean, imagine Trip Actions was on fire, and then imagine what happens to your business, your travel business, when COVID hits. And to the credit of Megan and also Carlos De La Torre, who's the CRO, they were like, "Never say die." there's an opportunity here. We've got to find it. And to their credit, um, they're doing very well right now. But Megan launched a campaign called hashtag pass the plane. And it was a very simple concept where you made a paper airplane and then you had an iPhone and you showed, you showed that plane flying through the air in your living room or whatever. And then you sent that to someone else. And you said, I've just sent you an airplane. And then that person was invited to have the plane coming at them, film it, and then do the same thing to someone else. And the idea was we can all be connected in a COVID world. And obviously the symbol of the airplane evoked trip actions, but it became this viral campaign that allowed people to connect with each other in a way that they hadn't before. And it was... Um, you know, because it was a paper airplane, it kind of took everybody back to their childhood. And there were a lot of kids that were featured in the program. But I just thought that was a brilliant way to, number one, emphasize this idea of connection, connecting with, with audiences, connecting with each other. Number two, viral loops and how powerful that they are. And number three, a really clever but subtle tie-in to what her business was. And it just all came together in a really beautiful way. I love that. And I, 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 uh, I remember, well, I think I actually interviewed Megan sometime around then. Um, and the funny thing is, you know, shout out to her and, and trip actions. Cause that company was like one of the absolute, like top performing 
hyper growth, all that stuff right before COVID hit because there's, there's such an awesome company and product. And to that's, that's want to talk about a really tough thing for a marketer to deal with. Hey, you know, we're on top of the world. We know what we're doing. We know where we're going and we, we have all this stuff to do. And now we need to scrap everything, restart from the ground up and figure out how do we do this? Kudos to them. Yeah. I was involved in a campaign. I'm really proud of it back at LinkedIn. I ran the LinkedIn marketing sales solutions and our marketing solutions. And at one point, we're really trying to figure out how to bring humanity back to sales. LinkedIn, at LinkedIn, humanity is a big part of everything that, that we were doing and that they continue to do. And so we came up with this idea of real sales as opposed to kind of the, the slick, slimy sales stereotype that you might see often portrayed in the media. But real sales are these hardworking people that genuinely love the people that they work with and genuinely want to want to help them out. And so uh, the centerpiece of this was a video around a guy named Rob Thompson. And Rob sold medical devices, one of which was a brace that you could put on people who had scoliosis. And so the, the video opens up with a shot of Rob and he's driving to a physician's office and he and the physician are working through with this device, what are they going to do with it, et cetera. And then we cut over to a young woman, probably 15 years old, who had a severe case of scoliosis. And she talked about the impact that this was having on her life. And the story became about how Rob and the physician and this girl were able to all kind of interconnect to not just kind of solve a problem, but really change this girl's life. And the final scene was of the girl. And she had this device on, but you could see how much confidence she had, how much different she was as opposed to this interaction. It was a really emotional piece. And um, for me, really captured the essence of what it means to be a true salesperson. And so what I, what I loved about the campaign, there was a, a genuine, authentic story there. It related back to what we did at LinkedIn with our sales navigator product. And it had universal resonance. And I think those are kind of, you know, all of us as marketers, that's what we aspire to do is great storytelling that ultimately moves the business forward. I want to know what is one of the campaigns that you've run over the years that was your least favorite or a campaign that didn't work that well? Yes, this campaign lives on in my mind in infamy. infamy. It was the great whiskey tasting campaign of 2013. (laughs) And uh, the idea was we had a a sales rep and and he was really into whiskey. And he's like, whiskey is so interesting. There's so many different facets to it. And I know this guy, he knows everything about whiskey and he can bring these amazing whiskeys out and we can do a whiskey tasting. And so we're like, all right, let's give it a try. So we, uh, we schedule this event, we get it all laid out, really professional, great venue, expertise. And I remember showing up and at first it was just my fellow colleagues and I, no customers or prospects, which was pretty bad. But what was even worse is when one prospect showed up, not two or three, but one prospect And he doesn't know initially that the rest of the people in the room are employees. So he's like, hey, introduce me to some folks. And pretty soon he catches on that everybody I'm introducing him to is from the same company. He's like, well, what about the customers or the prospects? I'm like, yeah, you're the only one that showed up. 
and it was mortifying. It was humiliating. It would have been way better if nobody would have showed up <laughs> because then at least, you know, we didn't have to face the, uh, the infamy of, of, uh, having to tell one guy that he was the only person. What did I learn from that though? You know, you can, you can come up with a concept, you can, you can come up with a, a nice venue, but at the end of the day, the hard work relates to getting the people into the room and it, it can't be a, a marketing effort alone or a sales effort alone. And I think where I, as a marketer, dropped the ball is I didn't think enough about how to actually get the attendees there. And I also didn't team up with the sales um, organization like I needed to. The other thing about events, and anybody that's done events knows this, you gotta be maniacal on the follow-up. If you are not on top of all the people that are involved and need to, need to invite and you're tracking that and you're sending out the status and you're sending out the red alert, if it's not coming together, it's not gonna come together. And nobody likes to be in that position, but that's kind of what you need to do to be successful for that kind of an event. And send out the calendar hold. For the love of all things, send out a calendar hold. There's so many times where I get invited to stuff and people don't send the calendar hold. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, if it's not on my calendar, there's I have a 0% chance of making it. Yeah, that's <laughs> unless, a great point. Unless it's, at my, unless it's in my kitchen, I, there's no way I'm going to make it. I love that. That's great. Well, it's funny because whiskey tastings and things like that, wine tastings and whatever, food tastings, whatever, those work really well. They're a great way to socialize and to sort of talk about stuff, but not talk about stuff and maybe learn something. And they work so well. So uh, even worse that, that it failed so spectacularly because those <laughs> usually work well. You're really rubbing it in. You're like, you have the perfect <laughs> event and you still couldn't book the room. <laughs> I, yes, I it know. is true. Did that, I got to ask, <laughs> did the deal close though? That was actually an existing customer. Uh, I think we were fighting for our lives. And unfortunately, I don't think we were able to renew that one. So it just went from oh, man. It just went from bad to worse. <laughs> from bad to worse, indeed. Um, let's talk website. Uh, you all have a slick website. Uh, I'm a huge fan. It's elegant and simple, which I love, but a lot of stuff on there. How do you view your website? Well, the, the danger of the website is that it can, you can attempt to make it all things to all people. And so we're, we're very focused on um, two priorities for our website. First and foremost, it is a lead gen tool for us. And secondly, it is a platform for our thought leadership. There are other things that you could turn your website into, but those are the two things that we focus on. So um, with respect to lead gen, uh, we actually have a lot of work that we've done behind the scenes, mapping through the journey through that website, different personas. If I'm a if I'm a RevOps person, for example, and I don't know anything about people.ai, what is my journey ideally going to look like? And then we've matched up each of the places in the website, the navigation, the content to ask ourselves, does this make sense? Where are the friction points? We've got some good diagnostic tools on the website itself. So we can also map that journey and compare what we wanted to have happen to what is actually happening and then, and then address things accordingly. Um, as I mentioned before, SEO is really important to us. And so we try to use our website also to showcase the content and the thought leadership that we're generating. And as a result of that, um, you know, for example, our Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast is really important. We've tried to merchand that, merchandise that on the website. But I think the big thing is just being focused and saying we're only going to do two things with the website. There are lots of other benefits that may emerge, but that's not the priority. And then being thoughtful about 
the experience for those kinds of people and what they have. Is there a particular area of the website that is like your number one focus or the highest converting area? Or what's a piece of advice that you would give someone listening to a, a place that they could improve their website? I will actually say that this is uh, interesting research that we've done. The pricing page on a website <laughs> tends to be the most visited and also the biggest indicator of, uh, of intent. And what's challenging about that is that if you are a B2B sales motion, um, it can be difficult to give one discrete price um, given the, the variables in the equation and also just the, the kind of discounting structure that you might run with. So there's always the, the quandary of, do we put price up there? Don't we put price up there? And I think a cheat is uh, you can call it pricing, but then you kind of show the way that your bundles and your solutions um, are positioned. And that's actually something that on our website we're, um, we are updating right now based on some recent research that we just performed. I love that. Well, we'll that was a great teaser. We'll have to all check out people.ai. Check out our pricing in a few short weeks. Yeah, no kidding. Yes. But but I think that that is a, is it is a very real problem because um you know, you don't want to uh to like you said scare anyone away when you have certain types of discounting or anything like that and you want to be as transparent as you can be, but that's just kind of not not how it always works in enterprise and like you said each each uh each account is is so different uh, when you get into the big numbers. That's right. Actually, well, one more piece. Any advice for for our listeners on on LinkedIn marketing? You know, you you were obviously there for a while and running a bunch of tools there. So, any any advice for people doing LinkedIn marketing? LinkedIn is a is a great platform. I think my first piece of advice though is make sure it's the right platform for you. The CPLs are going to be higher than what you may expect to find on other platforms. And so if you have a product that justifies the higher CPL, it can do amazing things for you. It can help you zero in on decision makers and reach decision makers in a way that you can't in other platforms. And so especially for the, the enterprise sale, maybe more of an intensive field motion, it's a great outlet. On the other hand, if you've got high volume transactional products LinkedIn, from a marketing perspective, probably is not the right solution for you. The other piece of advice that I always give is really understand your target audience because LinkedIn gives you incredible granularity in terms of who you can target. And that can work for you or it can work against you. If you are, um, if you are mistaken in terms of who you're going after, obviously you're going to see less results because you can get so focused. On the other hand, if you've done your homework, you know who their personas are, you know what the criteria is, you're gonna get right to that decision maker and be able to open doors that I just haven't seen other marketing platforms open in the past. I mean, I feel the same. I mean, I think it's unbelievably untapped in terms of how much opportunity there is. One of the things that we focus on a ton is organic on LinkedIn because of just how unbelievably well the, the algorithm favors video right now. It's like, if you're making high quality video that is personalized, like the stuff that we do for this show, um, you can see massive results. And you know, like we, we posted one of the videos for this show the other day did 5,000 views, right? So you're just looking at like, wow. yeah, I mean, you're looking at how much would that have cost if you were paying for it? And then if you augment that with actually paying for LinkedIn ads, you're talking about a massive coverage area and, uh, and that blend of organic and paid. That's right. Yeah. LinkedIn video. I could not recommend it more. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh. 
here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. So where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Justin, have you had a dust-up in your day? Indeed I have. I'd like to say I hadn't, but I have. Actually, this is a story that goes back to my days at LinkedIn. And one of the people that I really have a lot of respect for is the guy who at the time was the CRO, name's Mike Gamson. And Mike has a really interesting background. He started off as a product marketer. And at the time, LinkedIn didn't have an enterprise sales team, believe it or not. And Mike hatched this idea, maybe we could sell LinkedIn through a field model. And he pitched Jeff Weiner, the CEO on it. And Jeff said, go for it. So Mike, having never run sales before, basically built the sales organization from the ground up. And he's just an innovative out of the box thinker. One of the things that he implemented, which I thought at the time was crazy, the no discount policy. LinkedIn doesn't discount. They're one company that they put their they put their prices on the website and it doesn't matter if you're going to buy one seat or 10,000 seats, you're not going to get a discount from LinkedIn. Now obviously they have different tiers of pricing, but what you see is what you get. And that was Mike just saying, it's really messed up how we have these discounts. I'm not going to do it. Completely defied the industry and uh you know the rest is history. But anyway, I remember I was interacting with Mike on a topic and I sent him a note and I probably was a little flippant in my note or um, just hadn't really given it the thought that it deserved. And literally 45 seconds after I sent the note, my cell phone rings and it's Mike. And, you know, Mike and I interacted, but it wasn't like we were talking on a daily basis. So I looked down, and I'm like, Mike Gamson is calling me. What's going on? So I pick it up and he said, yeah, hey, Justin, I just got this email and I was reading it through and I got to be honest, it, it kind of came off as harsh. And I figured it'd be better rather than stewing over it just to call you and find out if that's what you meant or maybe if you just had a different point of view that you didn't really represent. And, and I genuinely had not meant to come off like that. But I thought to myself, this is the guy that's running the entire global sales organization. And he had 30 seconds to call me on the phone and ask me, you know, if I meant what, you know, he read into that note. And uh, for me, that was a 30 second interaction that I have retained for years after that. And the bigger story is like, call somebody up, talk to them, put it on the table. And it's amazing how that small investment will help you to avoid so many bad feelings or misunderstandings in the future. I love that. That's great. Okay, let's get to our final segment, our quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like conversational marketing with Qualified, you can go to qualified.com to learn more. Qualified, they're our best friends. So go check them out. Qualified prospects are on your website right now and you can talk to them quickly with Qualified quick and easy, just like these questions, Justin. Are you ready? Ready. Number one, if you were not in marketing or business at all, what would you be doing? Building furniture. Ooh, what type of furniture? Any kind of furniture. I would probably rip off my favorite designs from the internet and replicate them. I like that. What was the last uh, great 
TV show, book, podcast, whatever that you checked out? I, you know, one of my favorites is, uh, it's a little bit old now, but it's a, a show called Turn, Washington Spies. You seen that one? Yeah. I, I never watched it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Great marketing for that. Uh, I, I remember the guy's face and the turn at the backwards end. Yeah, it was uh, it's, uh, set in the Revolutionary War, and it's about the spy network that Washington set up that infiltrated uh, the British lines. And so it's a great mix of kind of a thriller with intrigue, but also a lot of good historical content as well. Is there a marketing campaign out there that you're jealous of? that I'm jealous of. You know, um, I love the Wendy's social media hack that happened. Um, it's been a while ago now, but I just think it was so smart where Wendy infiltrated Fortnite and started to destroy all of the freezers and it started a movement. And uh, I always think about, I always think about how brilliant it was. I mean, lock set on their target audience and completely wacky. And they took a brand that's kind of become stodgy and stale and just all of a sudden made it cool overnight. Nice work, Wendy's. How good are they? Awesome. That's just so, maybe that should be our next episode. I mean, it's so not, not relevant in B2B. Maybe it is, maybe it should be relevant. Video game marketing. No, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, at LinkedIn, we went through a rebranding exercise and part of it was changing our voice and tone. We wanted to adopt this persona that we refer to as the trusted colleague, that person that's kind of on your level, but they just have some good advice, but they're also very empathetic. And we realized that in order to do that, we needed to get away from the stodgy kind of business oriented voice that we would adopted over the years. And so uh, part of it was social media and the way we engaged our uh, the folks that we were connected with. And I remember the security team called up one day and they said, hey, I think there's been a hack. We're seeing all this social media traffic coming out of LinkedIn and it just sounds crazy. And we were like, no, actually that's our new voice and tone. <laughs> but I think um, you know, being personal and being at the level of the people you're trying to engage with, as opposed to coming across as condescending or out of touch, um, that's something that works in B2B just as well as B2C. If we brought you back here one year from now, what's the biggest thing that changed? I think that uh, I'm, I'm really excited about what we're doing at people.ai. I think we have the opportunity to kind of change the game in terms of how companies engage audiences um, and how they make salespeople more productive. And so a year from now, I think we're going to have a lot more customers we're going to have a lot of really compelling use cases where we'll be able to talk about really making a difference in the minds and the lives of customers and particularly salespeople. You know, I want to, I want to have campaigns on um, social that really amplify. This is what people.ai did for me. They got me back time. They helped me to make that number. And this is why it mattered to me personally in my life. I love it. We're super excited to follow along. We're going to check out your sales page here or your pricing page here in the next couple of weeks. Check out the pricing page. That's right. Yeah. By the time, actually, by the time this episode live, check it out right now. Go to people.ai uh, and everyone uh, can check out the pricing page. Um, you're going to get a lot of, a lot of low intent traffic. Well, maybe they're all looking to buy it. Who knows? Uh, maybe it's. Th thanks a lot. You just, you just screwed up our six cents model. There you go. Um, but uh, Justin, as always, great chatting with you. Any final thoughts? 
Uh, I'll, I'll throw in one more shameless plug. I referenced this before, but um, we've really enjoyed putting together a podcast called Legends of Sales and Marketing. I, I've had the privilege of talking to some of the best CROs and CMOs in the business, and they've been so generous in terms of sharing a lot of crazy stories. People getting attacked by bears, you know, people training horses and learning how to lead people as a result of that. And then on top of that, kind of linking that to what what they did to leave their mark from a sales and a marketing perspective. So I would highly recommend the podcast. Obviously, I'm biased, but we've gotten a lot of good feedback that it's engaging and really helps people to take their sales and their marketing game to the next level. Yeah. So you, you beat me to the punch. I was going to say for listeners, leave them with what's where should they start? What's the first episode that they should go listen to uh, for Legends Sales and Marketing? Well, these are like my children. So every episode is, uh, is beloved in my mind, but a couple of, a couple of ones that I really enjoy, uh, Melissa Murray Bailey, who's the CRO out at Hootsuite talks about how she ran as a Republican in the Philly mayoral race. And I won't tell you how that ended up, but suffice it to say, it's quite a drama. And, uh, and that certainly completely reshaped her life. There's a very poignant episode, uh, Carol Carpenter, who's the CMO out at VMware Tells, um, being the only Asian American girl in her class and some of the challenges that she faced and what she learned from her father in terms of how to confront difficult situations with bravery, but also to do so head on. And then a, a third one, which I really enjoyed, uh, Jim Steele who's the president out at Salesforce. He talks about some of the early days and getting some of the big deals done with Benioff that ultimately put Salesforce on the map. So you'll get kind of an insider perspective on how those deals went down and some of the magic that Jim brought to the table. I love it. Justin, thanks again. Appreciate it. Uh, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Take care. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.